mystery tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 28th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And we would like to wish you a very... Happy Valentine's Day, because we love you guys. Today, we're not going to be giving you a history of Valentine's Day. We're not? No. Oh. It's not haunted for us. It's it's not haunted enough. I'm sure in some parts of Valentine's Day, there's some haunting going on, but not not in any way that I know. Oh, I thought maybe, you know, with Cupid's shooting arrows through hearts, that there might be some unrest, but that's okay. I'll do whatever you like. Has Cupid killed people by doing that? Not that I've heard of, but... (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for bringing that up. Now everybody's going to have nightmares about the little Cupid running around with his wings, shooting arrows and killing people. (laughs) I guess that was supposed to be Denise's impression of Cupid. It sounded more like a dolphin dying. Diane. Well, I know you love dolphins, but that's what it sounded like to me. No, it was like a little psychotic Cupid shooting people with arrows. Fabulous. Anyway, the point I was trying to make before I was so rudely interrupted is that if you would like an in-depth history of Valentine's Day, I know exactly where you can go. The guys over at the Curioso podcast, Chris and Joe, have done an excellent job. They cover everything from St. Valentine's himself to the Greek and Roman gods that are connected to this to those chalky little hearts that you can eat. Which those are scary. Yeah, they're just not, I don't know. I've just, I mean, I eat them because it's like the thing to do for Valentine's, but I've never been a huge fan. I liked it when Sweet Tarts did them. Those were good. Now those are, those are good. They were Sweet Tarts. I have to agree with that. And, and any other little thing that's connected, they cover that on their show for Valentine's Day. I'll make sure to put it up in the Spooktacular crew. I'll also send it out in the newsletter. But if you go over to the, the curioso.com, the curioso.com. That's their website. You should be able to find it there. It'll be one of the top couple of shows. You just click on that to listen to it, or you can get it on iTunes, that kind of thing. It's a great job. Loved that show. And at the tail end of it, they did make mention of what we're going to cover today. This is our very first haunted event. A whole event with hauntings. So what is that, you may ask? The St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Indeed. And this is going to cover a whole bunch of fun, fabulous stuff. I mean, we're going to have murder. We're going to have the mob. Mayhem. Gangsters killing each other. And ghosts. This sounds like a podcast that we cannot wait to get into. (laughs) This is definitely going to be a ghost tour for the theater of the mind today. So we invite you to come with us to Chicago. You're going to hear some crazy stuff this evening. So come on with us. And uh, Denise, maybe we should put on our inner gangster to help us with this. You think? Sure, because I inner gangster all the time. (laughs) (laughs) If you start rapping again, 
<laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of gangster. Living in a gangster paradise. <laughs> you dirty, you dirty, dirty rat. Come on out of here or I'll shoot you through the door. Come on, you dirty rat. That was my James Cagney. What do you think? I think it's definitely better than your um, leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> you're not such a big fan of my leprechaun, huh? I like your leprechaun. Kind of just sounds like you're from Jersey. <laughs> well, here's here's the other one that would go with that a little bit better. Use guys Use and guys? over the merchandise. Merchandise. Hmm. There's a store like that. Mm-hmm. At um, Disney's Hollywood Disney Studios. <laughs> <laughs> New Disney was going to have to come in there somewhere. Yeah, because, you know, Disney and St. Valentine's Massacre always goes hand in hand. (laughs) But before we get into all of that great stuff, boy, you can already tell this is going to be a hell of a hell of a show. Want to make sure that you guys check out our website, historyghostbump.com. That's where you can find out everything you could possibly want to know about the show, from where to listen to it, where to find us on social networks, how you can donate to the show. We'd love to have your support in that way. Also, make sure you're supporting us by sharing this, too, the best way to get this out is by word of mouth and you guys have been doing a great job we've been getting all kinds of downloads and we really appreciate that and And making a lot of new friends too which is really cool because it goes out and then we get new listeners and they start interacting so we have been loving it absolutely and you can also sign up for the newsletter at the website as well and if you would like to contact us for any feedback about the show maybe there's something you want to hear about something you'd like to hear change where can they contact us denise at historygoesbump at gmail.com. All right. Well, I think it's time we grab a Tommy gun or two. And, Yay, uh, guns. <laughs> Light guns. <laughs> and get into this puppy. Absolutely. If you would like to support the show, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash historygoesbump. Or perhaps you just want to make a one-time donation. Click the donate button on our website at historygoesbump.com. Alfred Hitchcock was an amazing director, and one of his most well-known films is The Birds. Birds never seemed very frightening until that movie was made, except for perhaps Ravens, which acquired their infamous creepiness from Edgar Allan Poe. In Monterey Bay, California, in 1961, thousands of sooty shearwaters descended on the city and began acting erratically. They ran into buildings and people, regurgitated fish, and finally died. Newspapers reported the story on August 18th, and soon one of the papers got a call from Alfred Hitchcock, who wanted to know more. Such an event had never been reported before, and it seemed isolated. Hitchcock had read the 1952 story by Daphne du Maurier named The Birds, which was about unexplained bird attacks on humans. He decided to go ahead and make the movie because not only was there real-life proof of birds acting oddly, but the story was hot because it had made the news. Tippi Hedren was cast as the lead, and Hitchcock had Evan Hunter write the screenplay. He instructed Hunter to rewrite the entire story, keeping only the name and concept of the original. The movie premiered in 1963. The true story of weird bird activity was not isolated, though. Thirty years later, brown pelicans went berserk in the same area. 
Biologists decided to figure out what was going on, and they did. They isolated a toxin in the birds called domoic acid. The acid is produced by algae that is eaten by zooplankton. This toxin can affect humans as well by giving them shellfish poisoning. People have actually died from this. The effects of dumoic acid not only inspired a great movie, but the behavior it creates certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This day in history. On this day, February 14th in 1747, Astronomer James Bradley makes a presentation before the Royal Society in London of an incredible discovery he made. Bradley was born in Gloucestershire to an aristocratic family. Bradley was raised mainly by an uncle who was an amateur astronomer and was friends with men like Newton and Haley. Bradley became interested in astronomy as well, but he decided to become a vicar. He continued with astronomy on the side, and his love for it grew. With a recommendation from Newton, Bradley got an appointment which allowed him to do astronomy full-time. A rich amateur astronomer named Samuel Molinix approached Bradley about working together. Molinix had commissioned the building of a 24-foot zenith sector. With this instrument, Bradley developed a new era in astronomy of high-precision observation. Bradley later changed to a 12-foot sector, which he used to verify a theory that Newton had put forward. Newton claimed that the Earth moved on its axis. The reason why Newton believed this to be true is because stellar positions seemed to change slightly. Bradley was able to prove that the Earth wobbled on its axis by as much as a nine-second arc. This effect was caused by the Moon's gravitational pull. Bradley called this Newtation. Bradley presented these findings to the Royal Society, and he was given the position of Third Astronomer Royal. This is Christopher. And this is Joe. From the Curioso Podcast. And here at the Curioso, when we want to listen to ghost tours for the theater of the mind, we listen to the History Goes Bump Podcast. So, the most notorious gangster shooting in history occurred on a day that was meant for the veneration of a saint and for the commercialization of love, St. Valentine's Day. This event occurred during the era of prohibition and tension between rival mafia's families was at an all-time high. The crime was horrific and bloody and forever left its mark. But this event not only holds a place in history, it seems to hold a place in time and location in the present even though the building in which the massacre took place has been torn down. This event is haunted. And just so you know, we have a lot of pictures that will go with our ghost tour for the Theater of Your Mind today. You can find those over at our blog and any of the buildings that we're talking about and the different people's names that we're going to be talking about as well. We've got pictures of all of that up at the blog or you'll find them in the show notes as well. The SMC Cartage Company building stood along North Clark Street at number 2122. The building was a red brick, nondescript office building with a garage in the rear. The sign hanging at the top of the building claimed that the business specialized in packing and shipping. 
the only packing and shipping that was going on in this location was in the transportation of bootleg liquor. In 1929, Prohibition was in full force. Ten years earlier, the 18th Amendment had been ratified, making the production and sale of liquor illegal. However, people could still consume liquor legally, though, and so this era became a prime time for illegal activity in regards to alcohol. The man who owned the SMC Cartage Building was Adam Heyer. He was good friends with a man named George Moran, whom everybody called Bugs. Bugs Moran was born in 1893. Bugs' father was born in a part of the German Empire called Alsace-Lorraine. His mother was from Canada, and both parents were French Catholics. Bugs was a bad kid from the very beginning. By the time he was 21 years old, he had been jailed three times. He ran away from home when he was 19 and headed for Chicago. Bugs joined a group of Irish thugs that called itself the North Side Gang, and this gang was led by a man named Dion O'Banion. O'Banion and the North Side Gang were the main rivals to another mobster group in the Chicago area, the Chicago Outfit, which was an Italian mobster group from the South Side run by Johnny Torrio. These two groups fought each other for control of Chicago. Torrio invited a chap from New York to come to Chicago and help him run the gang, and that man was Al Capone, who came to be known as Scarface. Capone was born in Brooklyn in 1899. Both of his parents had immigrated from Italy. Capone did well academically in school, but he hated the rules at his Catholic school. He dropped out when he was 14 years old because he was facing expulsion for hitting a female teacher in the face. Like Bugs, Capone found trouble early. He joined several gangs in New York, finally working his way into the powerful Five Points gang in Lower Manhattan. Capone's trouble with women would continue, and while he was with this gang, he worked as a bouncer at a nightclub and insulted a woman there. Her brother took a knife to Capone's face, leaving him with a lifelong scar that led to his nickname, Scarface. Capone got married when he was 19 and moved to Chicago at the age of 20 on Johnny Torrio's invite. There he would work as a bouncer at a brothel where he would contract the syphilis that would eventually kill him. And Denise, I was looking at some pictures of Al Capone today and not quite the one that we have posted today, but this one is pretty darn close. When I look into Al Capone's eyes, I see a familiarity there. And the name that immediately came to mind when I was looking in his eyes was Ted Bundy. It's like that same psychopathic look. And Al Capone was definitely a psychopath. If you were on his good side, he was a great guy. He was nice. But otherwise, he had a horrible temper. And you did not cross him for anything. He was about 5'10", 260 pounds. He was not a little guy. And he was just very, very domineering. And obviously, if you were a woman, I don't think you'd want to be anywhere near this guy. Well, that's what I was wondering. I'm like, it says he got married. I'm like, who the heck would want to marry that man? I guess money talks, huh? (laughs) <laughs> Money or power. Dion O'Banion pioneered bootlegging in Chicago, striking deals with beer makers in Canada and gin and whiskey distributors. He also hijacked other gangs' liquor supplies. His first hijacking took place in 1921, and within several months, the Northside gang had eliminated all their competition. O'Banion was making $1 million a year. Now, imagine how much that was back then in the late 1920s. Oh, that was huge million money. dollars a year. It's a lot of money now. No kidding. But, back, but then. Yeah, that back then, it was worth a whole lot of money. O'Banion brought a flower shop as his front for criminal activity. It would be in this flower shop that he would meet his end on November 10th, 1924. 
Shortly after returning from a trip to Colorado where he purchased three Tommy guns, O'Banion had a disagreeable phone conversation with a rival named Angelo Ginna. Ginna had earlier dropped a lot of cash in a large marker, which is a line of credit at a casino, at a casino owned by O'Banion. Capone wanted the marker to be forgiven as a professional courtesy, but O'Banion refused and called Ginna demanding the money. Ginna and his family put out a hit on O'Banion. Frankie Yell, John Scalisi, and Albert Anselimi carried it out at O'Banion's flower shop on a ruse that they were there to get flowers for another mob boss's funeral. That's quite the front, a flower shop. <laughs> Tiptoe through the two left <laughs> and shoot you dead with my Tommy gun. <laughs> you know, I don't yeah, and I mean, the funny thing is, they were able to make the hit at the flower shop because he was working there. So he was probably doing some flower arranging when they came in. You know, I mean, a lot of people do use flowers and like the the bonsai trees and stuff for relaxation. So he might have actually liked doing flower stuff just to relax with all the stresses of his jobs. And You know, the thing I think is we talk about the history here and all the fighting and the killing and all that stuff that goes back and forth. What a terrifying existence you'd be living. I'd always be afraid somebody was going to kill me. Well, exactly, because it wasn't always because you really had betrayed them, but somebody of somebody, you know, instead of just this little jealousy thing where they talk about you, they would actually get people to turn on you, and then, bam, you were gone. Talking about that earlier today, I was looking through some of James Cagney's work because, you know, he played a gangster a couple of times, and one of the movies that he made where he plays a gangster as Angels with Dirty Faces, and Humphrey Bogart is in this one as well. He actually kills Humphrey Bogart in this movie. And that was the point in this one with, it was him and a friend had come out of their, you know, the building that one of them lived in, and they were just talking about, you know, friends forever, we're together, team forever, blah, 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 blah. And then they start walking down the street, and there's this popping noise that kind of sounds like gunfire, but it wasn't. And they both, like, duck down and cower as if they're getting shot. What they don't realize is across the street, there are some guys waiting in a window with some Tommy guns that are about to make a hit on them. And so, you know, they kind of look around and they stand back up and start to walk down the street again. And then the guys start firing on them. And uh, James Cagney's buddy gets hit and killed and James Cagney starts running and stuff. When I was watching that, I was like, how horrible, you know, just walking down the street and, you know, you hear popping. It could be a car backfiring and just what a horrible way to live. But of course, if you want to live as an evil person, I guess that's, you know, you're always going to be running from the devil. Well, and you always, I think part of it too is just that sense of wanting to belong to something because I think that's what happens with our gangs today, you know. I mean, when you look from the outside in, you're like, what the heck? You know, same thing. They're just drive-by shootings. You know, their family's at risk, the whole thing. Well, what did they call the mafia? The family. Exactly. Yes. So there's always that urging. And I mean, that's so many people have led people into to lives that were very questionable just because of that yearning to to have a family, to belong to something. And what's sad is, as you look at the history of these guys, it's not that they came from bad families or that they were just throwaways. They just, they made themselves that way. (laughs) They just decided to get into trouble. The O'Banion murder sparked a five-year gang war. At one point during that war, Bugs ordered a hit on Jack Machine Gun McGurn. McGurn was born in Sicily and his family emigrated to America when he was a year old. The Chicago slums would become his home and he would become a boxer. Now, if the surname has you confused, the reason is that Jack changed his last name from Gabaldi to McGurn during his boxing days because Irish boxers got better bookings. McGurn was not a bad kid and he had no interest in gangs. 
That all changed when his father was assassinated because he'd been mistaken as a gang member. McGurn avenged his father's death and killed the three men who had assassinated his father. Capone was impressed and invited McGurn to join the Chicago outfit. McGurn opened up a club called the Green Mill right in the middle of Bugs's territory. He served Capone's booze there, which probably set Bugs off. Yeah, so right there we go, you know, something happens, and then all of a sudden he's sucked into a whole different lifestyle than he originally had set out to have. And it was just mistaken identity. His dad happened to look like somebody. Well, and I could see that because, I mean, how many times do innocents or children get killed in, you know, even today's day by a, a bullet that's gone astray, you know, by a possible, like, um, drive-by shooting? And I could see somebody wanting to avenge, and so... You know, it just kind of keeps that cycle going. McGurn survived the assassination attempt by Bugs, and he flew to Miami to see Capone, who was vacationing there in the winter. He wanted revenge against Bugs, and everyone agreed that the trouble with the Northside gang needed to stop. The two men decided that they needed to do something big and that the entire gang needed to be executed. Capone agreed to put up the funds needed, and McGurn agreed to plan the hit. McGurn worked the streets and found out that the headquarters for the Northside Gang was at the SMC Cartage Building. Now he needed to figure out a way to get everybody to be there at the same time, including Bugs. A big shipment of liquor is what McGurn decided to use as bait. McGurn decided to enlist the help of gunmen outside of Chicago area because he was worried that if anybody managed to survive, they would recognize members of Capone's gang. McGurn got his hands on police officer uniforms and a police car to help perpetuate the elaborate sham he was planning. He then contacted a booze hijacker and asked him to call Bugs and tell him that he had a shipment of Old Log Cabin whiskey that he was selling for $57 per case. The bait was perfect because that brand of whiskey was not only good, but very expensive, and this was a deal. Bugs agreed to meet the hijacker the following morning, February 14th at 10.30 a.m. Now that we have set the stage, let's get to the event that occurred on February 14, 1929. It was 10.30 a.m. on North Clark Street. Harry and Phil Keywell were at a rented room across the street at 2119 in position as lookouts. These boys were from the infamous Purple Gang of Detroit, which was actually a Jewish gang. Can you believe that? Oh, wow. I wonder if they were kosher. (laughs) I I don't know. (laughs) They obviously didn't have a problem. You know, I... I don't know what all kosher entails, but obviously they don't have a problem with killing people. (laughs) You know, inquiry might We can't eat any pigs or anything or stuff touched by unblessed hands, but we can kill people. Harry Keywell would later tell police he was not there and he supposedly had a solid alibi. But alibis at this time were bought or lied about. Bugs Moran was running late. At 10.30 a.m., he and one of his men, Ted Newberry, were still on the way to the meeting. The lookout saw gang member Albert Weinshank come towards the building and enter. Weinshank had the same build as Bugs and looked much like him as well. The lookouts mistook him for Bugs and they gave the signal to the assassins that Bugs had arrived at the garage and it was time to launch the plan. The police car that McGurn had acquired pulled up outside the garage. Four men, Fred Burke, Joseph Lalordo, John Scalisi, and Albert Anselmi exited the vehicle. Two of them were wearing the police uniforms. The men entered the garage and announced that they were conducting a police raid. Rather than open fire or try to run, the Northside gang was compliant and allowed their weapons to be taken from them. And two of those names were familiar. We just mentioned them earlier, John Scalisi and Albert Anselmi. They were the ones who were in on the hit on O'Banion that started this whole huge war to begin with. 
And so I guess McGurn wasn't able to get all people from outside of Chicago. While this is happening, Bugs and Newberry arrive outside the garage and see the police car. They decide to avoid the raid and head to a coffee shop. Bugs has no idea that seven of his men are about to be assassinated. Those seven men were the garage mechanic John May, Adam Heyer, who owned the building, Peter Gusenberg and his brother Frank, Albert Weinshank, Reinhard Schwimmer, and Albert Kachalek. All seven men were lined up against a wall of the garage. The assassins opened fire using a forty-five, two Tommy guns, and a sawed-off shotgun. The faces of May and Kachalek were so obliterated they were unrecognizable. Seventy rounds of ammunition were fired. Holy cow. For seven people? Can you imagine? What I've heard, now nobody was there except for the actual people who'd done the shooting, so I don't know how people know this or not, but in most of the stories, it says that they were lined up facing away from them, which makes sense because then they wouldn't realize that these guys are about to, to kill you. The assassins continued their ruse as they exited the building. The two men dressed as officers pointed their weapons at the two men dressed in plain clothes while those men held their hands up. Neighbors who heard the gunshots assumed the police had raided the place and were arresting some gang members. They got in the cop car and drove away. The real police arrived a little later after a neighbor who'd walked in on the grisly murder scene called them. The neighbor had heard a dog barking wildly inside the garage. The dog was a German shepherd named Highball who had been left unscathed, tethered inside the garage. The police found all the men dead except for Frank Gusenberg. He was breathing heavy and choking on his blood. He'd been shot 14 times. He was rushed to the hospital where he died three hours later. The police were unable to get him to talk. An investigation was conducted, but nobody ever was pinned with the crime. Capone was in Miami, and Jack McGurn's fiance gave him what came to be known as the blonde alibi. She claimed that the two had been together while the massacre occurred, and thus ended the most notorious and horrific gang slaying in mob history. Yeah, so nobody ever was there were people who were arrested and questioned but nobody was ever charged indicted or put in prison for this so nobody ever paid the price for this one and to this day nobody is quite sure exactly what happened and who planned what and what was behind all of it because as you listen to the story one of the other key things that you hear about here is that this was hijacked whiskey which is what bugs was good at doing he was great at hijacking whiskey and the group that he used to hijack a lot of it from was this Detroit Purple Gang. And so if this whiskey had come from them, which is what the plant, quote unquote, was supposed to be, it could have been a legitimate hit as well that the Purple Gang said, you know what, we're tired of you hijacking our whiskey. We're going to come up there and take you out. So it could go either way. A lot of people don't touch on that side of the story, but there is a possibility that this was a legitimate, well, I don't know if you ever want to call a hit legitimate, but a legit hit. <laughs> it may not have been something that was a concocted plan by Capone and McGurn. And that picture there, Denise, that we have is the scene that was outside the massacre with uh, curious onlookers. Kind of reminds me of the Velisca Axe Murder House where hundreds of people came through and traipsed through the, the scene and wanted to see everything. This became a type of uh, tourist attraction almost to go in there and see the bullet holes in the walls and but you know what before we question it when we go to chicago we're probably going to go see a lot of these locations so i mean it is a, a thing for tourists to go see or these you know crime scenes and oh, haunted we places are absolutely going to go see this because i've already done some searching for ghost tours in chicago we already have i think mara's going with us and i'm sure our niece and nephew 
Josh, Josh and Romy, Mara, whoever else. But um, unfortunately, the little creepy will be too young. Yeah. And so, because um, he's only, what, four now, five? Yeah, I think so. Something like that. But anyway, but th- when you look up ghost tours in Chicago, it's interesting because we're not just talking the regular ghost tours where they talk about the history and you go through the old buildings. They're talking about ghosts of the regular kind that all cities have. But they're talking serial killers. They're talking gangsters, mob hits, and, of course, the St. Valentine Massacre. So Chicago has had so much unrest and stuff. It's going to be quite interesting. Now, of course, this wasn't in depth. There are books and books and books that have been written about not only this massacre, but the whole Chicago gang wars and, of course, gangsters in America, period. So this was just touching on the highlights. That is not where our story ends when it comes to History Goes Bump, because we have to have the part that goes bump. (laughs) This kind of violent act has all the ingredients for making a haunting. The location where the massacre occurred is very different today. The building is no longer there. The area where the garage had been located is now a grassy area that is connected to, of all things, a nursing home. Oh, my gosh. So, yes, people who run that nursing home, they are not hallucinating. Please get these people off of whatever you've put them on. Poor things. The brick wall that the gang members had faced before they were killed was torn down long ago, and a large tree marks the spot in the park. Before the building was torn down, an antique furniture store was set up in the front area. The owners did not realize that a massacre had happened at the location. Can you imagine? <laughs> That's uh, no, no, there, There's no truth in selling there. Well, the most notorious <laughs> massacre in all history of, of all the mob stuff that goes on, and oh, we just won't tell them about that. Now, now, Minor detail. Make- but here's the thing that's funny, Denise. I'm thinking, hello, you walk in, and one of the first things you do when you're going to open up your own business, you're going to do a little bit of refurbishing, I would think, at least throw some paint on the walls. Wouldn't you go, huh, this wall has a lot of holes in it. looks kind of like bullet holes. I wonder why. Yeah, unless maybe somebody fixed it up before. I, and you got to wonder if, the, you know, concrete, garage floor, blood, did, did that get cleaned up? I, hmm? Anyway, these people did figure out what this location used to be because they noticed that most of the people visiting their store were not there to purchase anything. They wanted to see the bullet holes that were left in the brick wall. There so we go. I'm sure there. a few people even asked them, hey, is this the place where the infamous massacre happened? And they're probably going, huh? God, could you imagine? <laughs> here, we're just here to see your bullet holes. But if you're smart, oh, you capitalize you know on and, that. And they moved out of the place when they weren't selling anything. I'm thinking, you know what? We're going to start charging for you to come in the door. And hey, if you want to buy some antiques, then we'll give you back your money for the uh, the door charge. Or yeah, or even start trying to get a hold of some of the antiques that had things to do with it or, you know. Yeah, you could do all kinds of, I mean, you could have made a museum here. This is this is a, a tragedy that this building was even torn down, you yes. know, really, to tell you the truth. They could have made a museum out of it. And I can't even imagine all the gangster memorabilia you could have in there. One of the things that you, you know, and I maybe have seen. Though they were, were maybe trying not to glorify that quite so much. It is our history. Denise, I would say that might be true, except for the fact that gangster movies were doing awesome during this time. Oh, so And if you think, I mean, it basically was before these people moved in. That's why it's weird that they didn't know this. I mean, it was a tourist attraction for many years before these people even moved in there, basically. So, But one of the, the cool things that you and I have seen talking about gangster memorabilia, we saw the car that Bonnie and Clyde were killed in. Oh, that's true. So we that was, did. That was kind of yeah. cool. In 1967, the building was torn down and the bricks from the infamous wall were auctioned off to a man named George Patty. So he reassembled the brick wall for the men's restroom at a nightclub he was opening. He put plexiglass in front of the wall to protect it. 
Three nights a week, the ladies at the club were allowed to peek into the restroom to see the wall. When the nightclub closed, the bricks were put into storage, and then Patty decided to sell the bricks one by one. Legend claims that the bricks are cursed. Is this true? Well, Patty soon started getting his sold bricks back. People were returning them, claiming that after they acquired the brick, their fortunes had turned. Many claimed that the bricks had caused them financial ruin. Some even blamed illness and death on the curse of the bricks. Where are the bricks today? Patty died in 2004, and nobody knows what he did with them. A few still turn up here and there. And you know what's interesting with that is when we did that ghost tour in Marietta, they were talking about the ironing board that was haunted. So with objects being haunted, so I would kind of based on that, that it does seem that sometimes it appears that objects are being haunted and the spirits are going with the objects, not necessarily just with people. Well, and we have twofold things here that we've discussed on the show. Not only haunted or cursed objects, but what are the bricks made out of? Probably stone. Yeah. So, you know, the theory that sometimes that kind of, that stone absorbs that kind of energy or something, Mm -hmm. you know, who knows, but yeah. Maybe someday we'll come across it. It could just be too. A lot of stuff is psychological. And maybe those people, once they had the brick, they already were heading into some financial trouble. And so they they said, oh, that coincided with me getting that brick. This is true. Blamed it on that when it had nothing to do with it, maybe. The nursing home park area seems to be haunted. People claim to get weird feelings of dread when they walk by and animals that walk by the area whine and cower. Haunting audible noises have been heard in the form of gunshots and screams. Unusual lights and mist have been seen. Male voices have been heard both audibly and as EVPs. Al Capone himself claimed to be haunted by an entity until he died. He claimed that the spirit was James Clark, who was Bugs Moran's brother-in-law and was also one of the massacre victims. James Clark was the alias of Albert Kachelik. When Capone was incarcerated at Eastern State Penitentiary, which also happens to be a very haunted location that maybe someday we'll not only talk about on here, but maybe visit, fellow inmates said they would hear Capone crying out at night, Jimmy, please leave me alone. In Chicago, Capone lived at the Lexington Hotel, which no longer exists there. I believe he had the entire fifth floor. He would have his most frequent encounters with Jimmy here. Bodyguards for Capone heard him begging in his room to be left alone. Occasionally, they would bust in thinking that someone was trying to hurt Capone, but Capone would be alone. He would tell them that Jimmy's ghost had been there. Keep in mind that syphilis might already have been making him half nuts. Capone enlisted the help of a psychic named Alice Britt to help him get rid of the ghost. It did not help. One of Capone's valets once saw the specter in the parlor, and he witnessed it run behind the curtains. He called for the bodyguards, but no one was there. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre left an indelible mark in American history. But did it also leave that same mark on the land? Was Capone haunted, and is that why the authorities pursued him so heavily after the massacre? This act put Capone on the authorities' map and led him to be proclaimed public enemy number one. Perhaps someone or something was helping the authorities. Is North Clark Street haunted by the ghost of the gangsters? Is the land cursed? That is for you to decide. So I'm definitely looking forward to at least being in the area of this location. The lookout nest, which is in the building that was across the street, is still there, actually. I think there's an Italian restaurant or something on the lower level. So this will be a fun stop along the way. And as we said there, it was because of this massacre that Capone was above the radar now for the police. They they knew he was a bad guy and they were watching out for him. But after this happened, they said, you know what, we got to do something about him. 
And that's when they really started coming down on him and started arresting him for stuff. And then finally, of course, as we all infamously know, it was the IRS who got their man and ended up putting him in jail. And he served his time for a while. And then he went back to Florida and died of syphilis there. Fascinating story. And, you know, what's fun about this story for me is I believe when I was a freshman in high school, was yeah, I think it was either a freshman or a sophomore. I can't remember now. It was so many years ago, I hate to say. But at some point in high school, in one of our history classes, we had to put together a magazine that was for a certain decade. And my decade was the 20s. And so I called it the Flappers Monthly. And I had a little flapper on the outside because I could draw on everything. And so I had my little flapper on the outside. And the two top stories that I covered in my magazine was the death of Rudolph Valentino and the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, because both of those events happened in the 20s. And so I was like, oh, this takes me back to when I was a kid and first uh, wrote about this story. Diane, only you'd be, this takes me down memory lane, the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so. Hey, Denise, as I've told the audience and you before, I'm the kid who asked for the entire Edgar Allan Poe anthology when I was a kid, so. I know, it's just so funny because most people, when they're walking down memory lane, are like, it's usually a little bit more fluffy. And and you know what's funny is that, you know, most people, when they listen to me talk about all my creepiness and everything, probably think, oh, she must be one of those goth chicks that has piercings everywhere. And I'm the total opposite of that. She looks more like kind of a yuppie girl. <laughs> I'm, this, I'm the creepy yuppie. <laughs> the creepy yuppie. Actually, that would be creepy to be a yuppie. You know what? Yeah. There are probably people who listen to the show that don't even know what a yuppie is because they're too young. <laughs> Hush. <laughs> well, then they don't, won't know what a hippie is either. Uh, that's true. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Uh, we invite you guys to join us for our next show, which is going to be another fun one. This is another author. I just mentioned Edgar Allan Poe. This is another author that I grew up reading who he's he's not creepy, really. Not creepy at all. And he has an animatronic at Epcot. That is true. Hanging out with Benjamin Franklin. I don't know how those two can be together, but hey. We're going to be talking about the life and afterlife of Mark Twain. So that should be a lot of fun. This is going to be similar to our Molly Brown, as people know her, but it is actually Margaret Brown's show. Or we covered her and her house. We're going to do the same thing with Mark Twain because that's where a lot of the hauntings are taking place at his home. Oh, very cool. So make sure to join us for that. We want to thank you for joining us for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this is Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.